Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Brought to you by the first ever Toyota Grand Highlander. Hello, friends. Jack, Flight School O'Brien here, uh, also known as Jack. Still can touch Ned if I get a running start and haven't eaten heavy breakfast to O'Brien. Uh, both nicknames that I go by. Inviting you to check out Miles and Jack Got Mad Boosties for a weekly basketball conversation with me and my co-host from the Daily Zeitgeist, Miles Gray. We are joined by comedians, writers, podcasters, and fellow NBA fans as we discuss the latest news and events from around the league. Check it out. Miles and Jack Got Mad Boosties. Brought to you by the first ever Toyota Grand Highlander. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at Exo. J-A-C-Q-U-I.com. Made for women by women. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, but there's no danger, it's a professional career. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkabam. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be dealing with another listener request topic. This is awesome. We love doing these and uh, we love that you guys are listening. So keep keep listening yeah. and keep requesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, Joe, do you want to read it for us? Sure. Well, our listener Nate wrote in via our email address. FWThinking at HowStuffWorks.com. Say it again. FWThinking at HowStuffWorks.com. Wait, are you sure it wasn't FXThinking? No, it's FWThinking at HowStuffWorks.com. Ah, oh, that sounds, it's just music to my ears. Okay. Nate wrote in saying, good show on the 5G topic. Thank you, Nate. Uh, he said, thanks for making podcasts that are technical in nature, but not so full of techno jargon uh, that I can't understand it. Possible show topic, DARPA. The future of the world's the most advanced military in the world. Speculate about the future or review some of the groundbreaking ideas, inventions that have come out of DARPA. 
Thanks much. Well, thank you, Nate, because we do talk about DARPA an awful lot on this show. <laughs> Dar- we do. DARPA is responsible it. for so many technical yeah. innovations. Well, it, it's not because we love DARPA. It's just because you trace the money back when you're talking <laughs> about the technology. Uh-huh. And somewhere along the line, you'll find DARPA. Yeah, Pretty pro- frequently, yeah. A yeah. couple of guys in dark suits and sunglasses with a briefcase and saying, just keep going. But it, it all sounds so silly slash sinister and a lot of – but anyway, what is DARPA? Let's go back and look at DARPA as an organization and figure out why so many technological historical roads lead to this strange military – shadow organization or have led out from there right uh, well let's start by saying because we love saying it uh the the even though no one ever calls darpa by its full name it is the defense advanced research projects agency yes and uh let's also say that as shadowy government organizations go this is a really forward-facing one <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah they put their like their press releases and their call for proposals on the internet. Yeah, they, yeah. they've worked with a lot of people who went on to work for other massive companies like Google, uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So this is the research and development arm of the U.S. military, uh, specifically part of the Department of Defense. Well, that sounds scary. Well, it's it's not. You it know, kind of is. It can be. I mean, the, some of the because <laughs> a lot of the the technology they're looking into are specifically for military. Uh, applications. It makes sense. It's a, it's part of the Department of Defense. It's very important that, uh, technology play a role in military applications. So, sure. But so much of the technology that we're talking about that where those roads lead back to DARPA has nothing to do with weapons in the end. Yeah. It, it may be that it's in lots of other ways, um, supporting military, uh, uh, roles and ends up in uh, filtering down into civilian technology that we all stand to benefit from. So it's not like this is all uh, super secret ray guns and and stuff like that, and that uh, that's the only thing they work in. This is all sorts of technology that could support the military in multiple ways, and often ends up becoming part of other types of of tech. Ah, uh, right, um, because I, I would argue that the that the really key word uh, in the DARPA acronym is not defense, it's rather advanced. Yeah. Uh, par- part of the agency's mission statement is to go after these high-risk, high-reward research and development projects. As of 2015, they're pushing four main areas of strategy, and those are rethinking complex military systems, mm-hmm. uh, two, being not just reactive, but proactive about the speed with which information technology is changing uh-huh. these days, Uh Three, harnessing biotechnology. Uh Oh, boy. And four is missing. And I forgot to write the fourth one down in the notes. <laughs> Such a good podcast. And the fourth one is on a need to know basis. I'm going to talk you about don't need to number know. three, which is uh, putting backpacks on beetles and getting them to fly around the room where you want. <laughs> let's wait. Let's hold for a second to find the fourth one. And four. I'm going to quote this one because it's a little bit less uh, forthright than than the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Expanding the technological frontier. <laughs> and also we should point out that DARPA is not – DARPA is not an organization that has an enormous secret underground scientific laboratory. No, in a lot of ways DARPA is money. Yeah, DARPA is – I think of it kind of like um, like – 
they're almost like a consulting firm for the government in a way. Like they put out a request for proposal Mm -hmm. saying, here's the thing that we want done. We have, this is our goal. We need to have this thing happen. And then they put that request for proposal out and they wait for the various organizations, usually things like universities and research centers to respond to that and say, we're going to attempt to do this thing that you have put a request out for. And then it goes from there. And it all depends upon the actual technology. You know, sometimes we're talking about massive companies like Boeing being involved. Sometimes we're talking about university labs. Yeah, there, there's um, plenty like Stanford has had a long association with doing some DARPA projects, particularly in the robotics field. Mm-hmm. So uh, don't think of DARPA as those secret labs. These are the guys who fund the secret labs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could they're, be they're, everywhere. They're not the agents of Shield. No, no. <laughs> they're they're the accountants they, of Shield. Yeah. That's 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 fair. That's fair. So, uh, yeah, like we said before, it is part of the Department of Defense. Uh huh. And the current director is a woman named Dr. Arati Prabhakar, who came up through DARPA's offices from being a program manager in 1986 to leading a whole bunch of semiconductor programs to being the founding director of their microelectronics technology office. So I'm not saying that she oversaw nanobots, but she probably (laughs) oversaw some nanobots. And to be fair, you could be overseeing nanobots and never even know it because that's how small they are. Right. You can kind of only oversee them. (laughs) Yeah. You can't really undersee them. No, you can't really. I mean, have you ever tried to get under a nanobot? It is like impossible. So as of 2015, (laughs) DARPA had a $2.9 billion budget. They employ only 219 like official full time government employees. Boy, salaries must be out of the and, this world. <laughs> 2.9 billion, right? And they, But they oversee 250 programs. Mm-hmm. And they have some 2,000 collaborations with universities, private companies, and other governmental entities. Right. Yeah. So this is a, I mean, this is a big deal. We're, we're having a lot of fun discussing this, but it's, you know, it's kind of because it has a little bit of the cloak and dagger kind of, oh, uh, absolutely. of, of yeah. reputation and also yeah. mad science reputation. So those lend themselves to that. Yeah. But when and it, I'm sure the stuff they don't want you to know kids could come in here and, oh, and sure. talk a big game about various DARPA uh, alternative theories. Sure. I'm sure we could bring them in for that. But the, the cool thing to me is that this is also an organization that has been responsible in, in a very direct way for incredible leaps in technological capabilities in, in various fields. Jonathan. Yeah. Tell me the story of DARPA. <laughs> well, it wasn't always DARPA, for one thing. That's true. It was ARFA. Ar- no, ARCA. So close. ARPA, of course. Yeah, they only dropped a letter. <laughs> they right. Didn't yeah. convert it. Uh, actually, they they gained a letter afterward. But uh, yeah, it was originally ARPA, just the Advanced Research Projects Agency. And uh, yeah, it, there was a specific event in history that that prodded the United States into forming this organization. Uh, right. Well, it was formed in 1958. Oh, less than a year after the USSR launched Sputnik. Yeah. The thing what beeped, as my <laughs> my old colleague Chris Paulette would say. Yeah. Well, of course, Sputnik was the first artificial satellite ever put into orbit by humans. Uh, yeah. Right. It wasn't the fact that it was beeping that really disturbed anyone. It was the fact that it was beeping and anyone in the world could tune in and hear it. And furthermore, that they had launched it into space. Yeah. So if you are the United States and the Soviet Union has just put something into space and you are part of the Department of Defense, 
you're going to be thinking some pretty serious thoughts. One is that if the Soviet Union can put something into space, it can potentially put something here in the U.S. all the way from the Soviet Union. Yes, not into space over the U.S., but just into the U.S. Yeah, so essentially intercontinental ballistic missile Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, Secondly, if they can put something into space, sure, right now all it's doing is sending out a signal that you could pick up if you're a, you have a ham radio or something, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, kind of interesting and, and neat. But potentially Turned further down the line, real interesting and neat. Yeah, yeah, it might be able to do other stuff than just beep. It might be able to take pictures. It might be able to take video or stream video. I mean, obviously, this is talking further uh, years in advance, but the potential was there. And so mm-hmm. clearly there was a need for the United States to get on the ball as far as technology is concerned. And yeah. so that's where the government said, all right, we're going to f- we're going to found an organization whose purpose is to, to research jump start. and develop science and technology exactly. specifically for defense. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the uh that was the reason for ARPA to come into being. And in fact, in the earliest days of the United States space program, ARPA oversaw a lot of those operations. It would mm-hmm. eventually transfer over to NASA, but originally it was ARPA that was overseeing those early uh uh space programs. Yeah. Uh a lot of the projects that they were that they were working on during their early days would wind up being really important to the state of technology as as we know it oh, today. Yeah. Uh, for for example, ARPA hired on JCR Licklider as their director of the Information Processing Techniques Office. And if you haven't heard about this dude before, his vision of computers as communication devices, not not just information information processing devices, which they were generally thought of back in that time. Um, His vision is a big part of why we have computers right now. Right. I Uh, mean, the kind of computers that we talk into and, you know, can play Bejeweled on and all of that kind of stuff. Right. Because before that, you're talking about massive machines that were self-contained, right? Mm -hmm. They were uh, often they were purposed for specific applications and couldn't do very much outside of those. So computers were useful, but they were also very limited. And it was his vision that really helped push that beyond those early limitations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, So they hired him on in the 1960s, and that led to a whole bunch of developments, including... Uh, Well, first, the ARPANET. So ARPANET, often people will call that like the predecessor to the Internet, which that's that's fair. It was the first uh, computer network that was a wide-scale computer network. It connected uh, initially just three computers, although more would join on later. And they were separated by vast regions of geography. So it wasn't like three computers that were sitting next to each other that then were wired together. This was a true accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to explain to someone who now can plug into the Internet wirelessly pretty much wherever they happen to be, how hard this was at the time. Yeah. Because they had to build the infrastructure, as in the actual physical infrastructure, the the things that would plug into the various machines. They also had to create a means for these machines to communicate with each other because the other issue about computers back in those days is that if you had two different computers, they essentially spoke two different languages. Mm-hmm. So you had to create a common form of communication for these computers to be able to work together in any meaningful way. And that became the purpose of uh, several of the researchers there to develop the protocols that would allow information to be passed across this network and to be accepted and interpreted properly on either side. So – 
This would end up leading into the technologies that we now use in the Internet. A lot of them have evolved into that role. So uh, while the ARPANET, you might argue, was just a computer network, the Internet was a network of networks, which... You know, incorporate you, lots of stuff. You need you need some networks first in order to yeah. really get off the ground. Exactly. Right? Sure. So so we can thank DARPA for the fact that the internet is a thing. I mean, it's again a lot of the the technologies we'll talk about. You could argue would eventually come to being eventually anyway. But the key word there is eventually. The right. reason they happened when they happened is largely because DARPA was funding the research that made it possible. Mm-hmm. Sort of side question. Has anybody ever put a date on the time that the Internet became the Internet? Uh, yeah, I, I I don't have the date in front of me, but essentially, yes. Yes, is the, there is a record. There is a record of that thing. Yeah, uh, because if you're talking about the Internet, one other thing to remember, of course, and I mean, I'm sure our listeners are really aware of this, that the Internet and the World Wide Web are two different things, right? The World Wide Web exists on top of the Internet. So if sure. you're talking about the but Internet. the Internet probably wasn't really the Internet till there was an X-Files fan site. <laughs> <laughs> so so in other words, you had to wait for the X-Files. So the Web had been around for a little bit, yeah. but no one cared. Um, right, it didn't have any X-Files content. It really, I would argue that, it didn't really become the internet until 1998 because that's when cats were invented. And that's, oh. that would be when, when the internet really <laughs> took off. That was a good year, the yeah. invention of cats. I think so. It, I liked it, it. Finally made all those hieroglyphs make sense. That right? was retroactively. It was yeah. retconning is what we call that. Anyway, uh, it's not the only technology that DARPA had a hand in developing. Uh, it also was, uh, largely responsible for the funding of research that led to the Global Positioning System, or GPS. Um, another technology that got a big boost from Sputnik going into space. <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the Navy first tested a system called Transit back in 1960. They used five orbiting satellites that would allow ships to fix their exact position. Uh, a successor to that was called Timation in 1967. Uh, the interesting thing was that the military used these satellites for a very long time and civilians only got partial access to this data. It was specifically degraded on purpose so that you would not get an accurate reading of your position because uh, it was considered too valuable for military use to allow civilians to really get an, uh, that information. Uh, right. That's why that's why some of the first GPS systems were so crappy in comparison yeah. to the ones that we have today. It wasn't because there was something lacking in the technology. It was because it had been purposefully restricted. Yeah, it was called selective availability. And mm. you, if you look at the the... There were forums that were dedicated to GPS, like the people who are really into this kind of stuff. That's like any other technology. There were people who really thought it was super cool, like the early adopters. The ham um, radio enthusiasts Yeah, mm-hmm. GPS. They might talk about, oh, this one has uh, a precision of up to 500 feet. <laughs> so you'd be somewhere within 500 feet of – like you knew your position was within 500 feet of what uh-huh. you were being told. It made, it made geocaching a lot trickier. Yeah, and in fact, geocaching really – took off because uh, Bill Clinton got rid of the policy of selected availability. Mm-hmm. And once that was eliminated and these GPS uh, receivers could suddenly get much more accurate readings. Uh, people were more interested in buying them and using them. And the the enthusiasts were the mm-hmm. ones who were saying, hey, why don't we use this to 
uh, have a game. And mm-hmm. you, you know, I did a, a whole article on how geocaching works where I talked about the history of it. Mm-hmm. And it actually is really fascinating. It became this, this means of, uh, hunting treasure using these online forums. Yeah. And again, DARPA was largely responsible for the research and development of that technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then, of course, there are all kinds of DARPA projects that we've talked about on the podcast before. We've talked about the ones where they, uh, where they were trying to control the flight of beetles and stuff with little backpacks uh-huh. that they put on them. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about, of course, their, the, the DARPA contracted Boston Dynamics robots. Oh, yeah. Right, right. We'll so talk about that leg, a little bit too. Yeah. They're legged walking. Uh, we, we've talked about autonomous cars. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The grand challenges. Those were, uh, those are a really big deal with DARPA's past where, uh, DARPA had created these challenges for teams to create autonomous vehicles that would have to complete a course within a certain amount of time. Uh, and um, the very first one, there were no winners. No, none of the cars were able to complete the course successfully. The second year, they had, I think, five or six teams successfully complete the course. And the one that had the lowest time won. And then they decided to make it harder. <laughs> so the original course was like a desert course, right? It was mm-hmm. pretty wide open space and it was, you had to go from point A to point B and it did require turns and stuff. It wasn't like a straight shot, but it wasn't having to navigate through like traffic. Uh, they, they made it tougher by setting it in a simulated urban environment. I, th- I think they used essentially an, an old, um, uh, army base. And they set it up as if it were a town and they included actual traffic in the streets and I think even pedestrian traffic. And the vehicles had to be able to autonomously plot a path from a starting position to a destination. They were not told what it was going to be beforehand. And then the cars had to navigate through that, obeying all traffic laws as well. So a much more difficult task than just going from point A to point B. And we've seen that continue, too. The most recent robotics challenge, the one that's going on right now and will conclude, uh, we're recording this in April of 2015. Uh, in the summer, there's going to be the robotics challenge that requires teams to create a robot that can get into a vehicle, drive the vehicle to a location, get out of the vehicle, go into said location, navigate a set of stairs, uh, go over possibly some rubble, break through a wall... Connect some wires together, operate some control systems, and do something secret that has yet to be revealed to the teams. And the purpose of this is to create a robot that can respond to emergency situations. It was specifically inspired by the Fukushima disaster. I that I. I'm really sorry, guys, but the the second that you got to breaking through a wall, all yeah. I could think of in my head was like a like slim ninja version of the Kool Aid Man. <laughs> See, that's interesting. My first thought was that it's it's a robot that turns into the Incredible Hulk. Oh, okay. that was my version of smashing through the wall. But Kool Aid Man is that's good too. Oh yeah, it would be hilarious if it actually oh, did. Yeah. Yet shout out, oh yeah, oh, when yeah. it does that. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah. And I, I'm sure at least one team is going to have to do it that way. I really hope that someone does. Yeah. So anyway, that's that one is going on right now. And uh, I look forward to following the the progress of the various teams. And kind of also, I'm very curious to find out what the secret uh, objective is that has yet to be revealed. And the, the, the idea is it's supposed to test the robot's ability to deal with um, changing situations that are difficult, if not impossible, to predict. Uh, yeah, but of course, there are lots of new DARPA proposals going on all the time. Yeah, and we should uh, preface this. We're going to be talking 
some of these we will not be covering in depth. And the reason for that is that the proposals are in various stages right now. Some of them are so early and so vague as to be impossible to go into depth about because Uh, there's nothing to talk about yet. Yeah, there's no science to talk about because no one has done the science yet. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's where science comes from, from exactly. no one having done it yet. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Uh, and this this first one that I'm going to mention is one of those things. The The press release for this was only put out on April 13th, I believe, of 2015. And uh, this is for a project the DARPA is calling N-Zero. They love acronyms, you guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A whole bunch. Yeah, yeah. I they have a they f- are Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> I, I've got a feeling. <laughs> hey, callback. I've got a feeling that uh, uh, that we're going to see like there's a de- there's got to be a department in DARPA that's just like, all right, you got to come up with a really awesome uh, project name that could be a cool acronym. So just keep on tweaking it until the acronym <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. So so N zero. That's near zero power RF and sensor operations, and. This project is currently seeking proposals, and it, it's it's looking to develop low-energy wireless sensors that can wake up and take action when a particular event triggers them. Like, for example, infrastructure damage. Uh, if if a crack uh, appears in a dam, for example, then these these sleeping sensors could could wake up and phone home or if there's a forest fire or et cetera, et cetera. or an earthquake or an earthquake yeah, yeah. sure yeah th- that makes sense to me actually because one thing we've talked about before is uh imagine we're going into the world of the internet of things and mm-hmm. and one of the primary components of the internet of things as we've imagined it at least is sensors right you know mm-hmm. ubiquitous sensors sensors on everything that let you know when something's going on that needs attention or that give you data that you can use somehow mm-hmm. to, to make decisions yeah. or have your environment change for you or yeah. whatever it may be. So You're going to have you, sensors everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So, so that you don't have to be in a place watching a thing personally. Your, your place can monitor that for you. Sure. But you don't want those sensors to be a big power drain, of course. Right. Oh, sure. And you don't want them to have just sort of like little batteries that you'd have to replace or recharge all the time. Sure. Mm-hmm. So this makes a lot of sense to me if you can come up with ways of, of having sensors that are basically not draining power or somehow inactive when they're not in use. So essentially they can go into some form of sleep mode and thus prolong the life of their power source. Also, uh, it's attractive for another reason, that reason being that I think most of us would prefer a world where the sensors are active when they need to be and not always monitoring everything we do all the time, always. Yeah. Uh, sure. Or the the sort of compliment to that is that the sensors are largely invisible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want them like uh, activating all the time when they're not doing anything uh, useful for like you. Like a smoke alarm that goes off every time you you fry a piece of chicken in a pan. Sure. That's why I eat out so frequently. Though, I mean, the smoke alarm that does that, I must point out, is operating correctly. It it's, is. Thank it's you. you. It's your cooking, so, is what we're saying. Aw. No, that's fair. I'm a really terrible cook. This, pod, uh, this podcast has actually been an elaborate intervention, and it's led up to this point. Oh, <laughs> More this than a hundred episodes. That's, I 
congratulations, guys. I would slow clap, but I don't want to set off the audio. But I guess it doesn't matter since we're not really making an audio podcast. Well, you know, I've always tried to to stick with baking more than cooking. But now this is... uh... We are just kidding. Lauren, I I must say, I've seen you bring leftovers before that look delicious. Oh, well, thank thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. Most of them were from takeout. So Uh, what else has DARPA been up to besides making these low energy or sending out a proposal for these low energy sensors? Well, here's another call for proposals I was reading about that I am fascinated by because of the vagueness. Yeah, this was one of that, the proposal and and it leads your your brain down a bunch of strange directions. Yeah, when you when you told me about this one, I was so perplexed and honestly I still am because I haven't had a chance to dive into it to a point where I feel like I really have a grasp on it. So mm-hmm. why don't you walk me through what this is? Okay. So this is known as brass and brass stands for Building resource adaptive software systems. Of course, and it so does. they are currently seeking proposals. Um, and the idea behind this is that they want to, or at least as we understand it, is that they want to create software or frameworks for creating software that sort of eliminate the need for updates. Right. They External could, updates. Uh, right, right. That can dynamically adapt to all the software and hardware around them. Right. So so we're all familiar with the need for software to update. You know, computers are incredibly powerful, but they interface with us through software that has very little resilience. Just think about how easy it is to just completely break and ruin the operational software profile of your amazing piece of hardware computer. Well, or just the fact that uh, let's say that you get anyone who's ever done an operating system upgrade where they've upgraded from one version to another and then realize that some of their programs no longer work properly, that's a problem. And it's a problem that DARPA has identified as being a serious issue, particularly in military applications, where uh, downtime could put people's lives at risk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another side to this is if you hear the stories about, like, you know, the missile command systems that are still running on, like, COBOL-operated, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. just these ancient software systems – uh, but anyway, so DARPA announced this was also this month, so April of 2015, uh, that it would launch a four-year research project to find out what it would take to create software that remains robust for a 100 years without updates. What? So uh, I think they're, they're not necessarily saying, like, time to create that software. They're saying, let's do research to figure out what it would take to create software right. well, like that. Yeah, let's let's identify the requirements and then start to identify how those requirements could be met. Yeah, so this is a quote from their call for proposals. So Brass, quote, seeks to realize foundational advances in the design and implementation of long-lived software systems that can dynamically adapt to changes in the resources they depend upon and environments in which they operate. So that's really interesting. And and again, this is something where it's just a call for proposals. Um, so we don't know everything about what they mean yet. But there have been different interpretations of what this means. Uh, one of them is sort of that, okay, so all software lives on what this, uh, this release called an ecosystem. And that sort of makes sense. It, there's an ecosystem of 
other software out there. There's other software in the world that has to share and trade information with. Okay. Um, there's the hardware that it runs on, you know, sure. the physical stuff that allows the software to execute. Uh, there are protocols, and, you know, that's like the language the software uses to communicate with other pieces of software. One mm-hmm. example would be HTTP, the protocol of web traffic. Okay, sure. sure. Um, of course, the users that operate it could be considered part, part of the of ecosystem, the, mm-hmm. possibly. Uh, the libraries that support it. All the data that goes into it, right? Yeah, yeah. So libraries you could think of as like imported tools that are used in software. So mm-hmm. you might have like the Windows control library, which would include like Windows buttons and stuff like that or mm-hmm. subroutines. And of course, for any program, this ecosystem is constantly changing all around it, around it. And this is why we have to have software updates. I mean, sometimes you'll realize there's a vulnerability or something like that needs that needs to be a patched. Patch. Other times it needs a compatibility update. Mm-hmm. It needs to be updated to work with something else. Or you uh, might right. Be- uh, well, well, because I was going to say uh, when like Firefox updates, yeah. and all of a sudden Adobe Flash is like, oh, I don't work with this version of, mm-hmm. of Firefox anymore. Let's get on writing some new code to patch that up. Right. Or you might be saying, well, I want to port this piece of software to a totally different environment. So it, it used to run on my web browser. Now I want to make it an Android app that does exactly the same thing. Sure. Uh, okay. Well, th- that's usually <laughs> not so easy. You've got to like actually make, have some developers go in there and make some changes if I'm interpreting this correctly, what it sounds like they want to get into is the idea of self-adapting code for software programs. Like, the, like how can you create software that is itself sort of uh, mainly just driven by its goal? Like, it has a function that it performs and it adapts when its conditions change. Uh, sure. So, so kind of rather than having software updates that have to be written by a team and installed either manually or or automatically when the team sends them out, you would have software that's essentially updating all the time. Itself. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I that might be the case or it may be something that could potentially be I hesitate to use the word simpler because this would still be incredibly difficult. But the development of a new form of software platform that could perpetually do what it's supposed to do, no matter what kind of equipment it's running on. You know, let's say that the because, I mean, obviously, if you if you assume that Moore's law holds true, at least for a while, then the computers of 10 years from now are going to be so much faster than what we're using today that running today's software on them would seem ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It certainly wouldn't be optimized for that equipment. This sounds like it's a proposal to try and create a type of software that would consistently be able to adapt so that it is running at the appropriate efficiency for whatever conditions happen to be there. In other words, if you're using it in the future, it should be just as efficient uh, on that future equipment as it is on today's equipment, mm. which is yeah. an incredibly difficult thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Sort of that would be like if you took a copy of, I don't know, we were just talking about Silent Hill, uh, Silent Hill 1 for uh-huh. the PlayStation and being able to plug it right into a PS3 and have it look like a PS3 game. Or at least run. <laughs> I mean, cause see, that's the other <laughs> well, thing sure, about, sure. that's the other thing about legacy systems, right? Is that backwards right. compatibility isn't always 
considered and built in. Exactly. If we look, if we just look at the brief history of computers already, which have not been around that long in the grand scheme of things, there, there's a host of different forms of media that we no longer have access to that, you know, we don't have the devices that read that media or there are very few of them in existence these days. So uh, this is also supposed to be a system that's going to have a, a century's worth of longevity to it, meaning that the stuff that's created at the beginning should still be just as accessible in a 100 years. That's not even true for the stuff we build right now. That is in itself is a huge task, right? I mean, the oh, stuff yeah. that the oh, stuff yeah, that was made back on punch cards, you're not going to I doubt any of our listeners have access to that. Yeah, so I mean, it sounds like you're talking about the, the same kind of thing I am, from what I can tell. Uh, More or less. I mean, the only thing I, because I, I've seen interpretations that suggest that that every implementation of this would adapt on its own to a point where, like, some people have, in some of the the stories I've read, have have equated this to. Uh, artificial intelligence and the potential rise of sentience, sentience from sentience, sentience from, uh, from artificial intelligence, which is a totally different thing, right? It's not, it's not that the software is intelligently adapting itself so that it will be, uh, the, the better, faster, and stronger on that hardware. Uh, right, right. It's, it's just saying, oh, I have, uh, this much more memory now. Let's use it. Or, oh, right. uh, yeah, this, this this other program has changed, and so I need to change in order to use it. Something along those lines. I mean, that's again the the vague descriptions make it difficult for us to really come down on this. And also, uh, the the responses to this request for proposal could end up having a limited response, or it could end up being a a response that that the response says, yes, we're going to meet all of these requirements, but the reality may shape out totally differently. It's it's impossible to say. This is the very dawn of this research for mm-hmm. this particular uh, project. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see what happens four years from now when this, this kind of research project comes to an end and see where we're at and uh, what has actually taken place. Because right now it's very hard for me to envision what the end product is going to be like. Another project that is in those early beginning stages is called Thor. Is it mighty? It is the mighty Thor. Yes, it is technologies for host resilience. And it is currently, <laughs> it is currently reviewing proposals. So they, so they had a proposal acceptance round. They've received a bunch and they are presumably looking at them. Um, and, and this, this project is, uh, trying to discover how disease tolerance works in various creatures and various systems of creatures, and to then identify ways to make organisms, uh, presumably mostly humans, stronger against infection. That makes so much more sense than what I thought technologies for host resilience was going to be. I thought it was going to be about how, you know, when you have a party and like you've invited different people to come to your party and you know that one of those people really hates the other one. So you got to figure out how you can position them at the party so that you don't have any of those awkward social situations. I thought that's what this was about. And then fortunately, none of them arrive anyway. Yeah, that's my party <laughs> to a T. Joe, you've just described every party I've ever tried to throw. Um, no, but you know what? Getting back into this, the, the proposal here, I love this idea because to me, this, this sounds like a proposal. Let's look into alternatives for things like, uh, um, antibiotics. Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's, it's flipping the, the 
common system on its head of, of figuring out how to attack better. This is learning how to defend better, which is so cool, medically speaking. And yeah, yeah. especially with all the problems that we've uh, talked about having with uh, yeah, antibiotics, like we, the overuse of antibiotics. And did we do? Did we do an episode resistance. about the future? Yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. we had. Yeah. So yeah, we we talked about that at length about the the various issues, which. I mean, this would be a really cool kind of technology that could stand to benefit millions of people well beyond military applications. Oh, sure, sure. So uh, here's hoping that that pans out well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are also DARPA's lo- looking at alternatives to GPS. Uh, yeah, after creating this amazing satellite global <laughs> uh, uh, positioning satellite system, they they're like, you know. This isn't working so great. Yeah, yeah. Or, or rather, there <laughs> that are there used are to be cool. there are some limitations. Like one of the oh, limitations right. is that well, if you don't have satellite coverage, then you don't get the inf- the data needed to mm-hmm. tell you where you are. And sometimes you don't have satellite coverage because it can be blocked. Yeah, and it might be blocked by a physical structure. So, mm-hmm. example, you might be in a city that has lots of tall buildings, and you're not getting a clear signal, and that might be it. Sometimes you might be in a really deeply wooded area. That might be it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you might have uh, a, an opponent of some sort jamming signals, so you cannot get a clear signal from a satellite, and thus your device cannot determine what your position is. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why you might want to look into this. Or, you know, it may be that the environment you're in, like if you are in an underground facility, you're not going to get a strong signal. You know, so what what are some alternatives? Uh, and there are a lot of different proposals on this. One of them uh, is called the All Source Positioning and Navigation Project, or ASPEN. And uh, this one is interesting. It, it's supposed to make use of all available signals in an area. Everything that is being transmitted, including things that are not being transmitted by humans. And by that, I mean, it'll pick up radio signals, television signals, cell tower signals, all to try and position itself, but also naturally occurring phenomenon like lightning. Mm. Because if you know where the lightning strike is and your your system detects the lightning strike as well, it can coordinate that information to help locate your fixed position. Wow. Uh, and because this would be a passive system, you wouldn't, um, without shutting down everything, you wouldn't be able to jam it. Uh, so that's the, you know, one of the ideas. And it's not the only alternative to GPS that DARPA is looking into, but it's the one that I could find the most information on. <laughs> um, also, they're looking at, at maybe looking backward at computer models. Uh, right. The computers we have today are digital computers. The computers of the past were analog and they're like, hey, you know, those analog computers were actually pretty cool. Yeah, this is a this is going to make a lot of sense to all the musicians out there. The difference between digital and analog. Uh, so digital deals with discrete measurements. You know, essentially, when you get down to it, a bit is either a zero or a one. It can't be any other value. Right. Mm-hmm. Unless you're talking about quantum bits, which are technically zero, one and everything in between. Um, so your classic bit is either a zero or a one. And that leads to the ability to make discrete measurements with incredible precision. But as far as dynamic, changing, complicated systems go, it's not ideal. So something like a really complex fluid system would be difficult to simulate with classical computers without using a huge amount of of computational power. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why when we talk about things like these really dynamic systems like climates and weather it's difficult to simulate. Uh, it's why it needs so much processor power. But what DARPA says is that if we look at more of an analog method 
of computation, we could potentially make these sort of simulations using much less computational power uh, comparatively speaking, make it more efficient. So we're not constantly having to build the next great supercomputer in order to to simulate these systems. Uh, and when we talk about analog, they're not talking about like mechanical switches or anything like that. They're talking about some pretty high tech stuff like DNA computing models or photonic systems that are using optical uh, you know, fiber optic wires instead of instead of electricity. Mm-hmm. So it would be uh, still kind of a sci-fi high-tech computer, and it would be really, really good at dealing with certain computational problems, not necessarily faster than a classical supercomputer for other types of problems, however. Sure. Very much like quantum computers. We talked about that in the past, too, how quantum computers could be amazing at particular applications, but it doesn't mean you're going to be able to run the next version of Skyrim, like the next Elder Scrolls game at, at the highest frame rate. That's not what a quantum computer That's is not what it's good for. for. No, no. But it probably would make those mods even more interesting. <laughs> now, there's a particular office within DARPA called the Tactical Technology Office, which looks at, quote, military capabilities that create an asymmetric technological advantage and provide U.S. forces with decisive superiority and the ability to overwhelm our opponents, end quote. So that's uh, your more old-fashioned, just straight-up military technology, right? Yeah, this is the stuff that would give our side a technical advantage over anyone else's side. That's essentially what it comes down to. And what what I love is that it says an asymmetric technical advantage. Like, technical <clears throat> advantage isn't good enough. It has to be asymmetric. asymmetrical. Yeah. What they're saying is, we're investigating how to make war more unfair. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so the, here are some of them. And the first one, I can't believe they took this name. I mean, I really can't. They they have a project called Hydra. Hail Hydra. Hail Hydra. So that's like a uh, – y'all have to help me here because as we've established, I'm sort of a casual comics fan. All right. So two uh, out of the three members <clears throat> of Forward Thinking now know that the third one is not one of us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, Hydra is is that some sort of like weird Nazi thing in it's, Captain it's a, America? It's an evil organization that's set up in the Marvel universe. That uh, it, it, yeah, it's like, an offshoot like, of the uh, well, because you know the Captain Marvel, uh, Captain America rather comics started during World War II, and mm-hmm. so Hydra originally was an offshoot of the Nazis of the Third Reich. Yeah, yeah. and now now exists as its own totalitarian secret organization uh, that is attempting to bring the world under one world order. So hopefully that's not what this defense no, department no. initiative is trying to evoke. It's not the Fingers same thing. Crossed. Yeah, as far as I know, they don't use the, the Marvel uh, Hydra symbol as their logo or anything. <laughs> no, this is a project that is specifically dedicated to adding unmanned support in naval operations. Ah. As in the Navy, not as in belly buttons. Uh, so manned ships can't be everywhere. Right. Like you, you if you, if there's a conflict and the Navy has to be involved, uh, you know, you have to just like with any military resource, you have to be very strategic about where you're you are locating your resources and how they can respond in mm-hmm. any given situation. And they can't be everywhere at once. So this would actually be a program that would uh, uh, augment the Navy's operations by creating unmanned platforms and platforms in this sense mean a, a method of uh, attaching whatever tools you need to accomplish your mission. So if it's surveillance, it might be various sensors, cameras, that kind of thing, uh, microphones, 
et cetera. And you would deploy these with Navy ships. And ideally, they would be able to remain operational for months at a time without the need of having to be recharged or main, maintained hmm. in any way. Uh, so really, in a way, it's, it's like saying, let's, let's have lots of, of ways of listening in and paying attention so that, uh, it, it's almost as if we can be everywhere. Uh, but in reality, it's because we have these unmanned um, uh, platforms in mm-hmm. order to to gain that that or to gather that information. Underwater drones. Yeah, it could be. I mean, that could certainly be part of it, because, again, this is sort of the de- definition of what their goal is. It's not the explanation of how they achieve that goal. Right. So they use lots of vague terms like platform and payload because it's better to go ahead and be vague and not predefine what it is. Because you may come up with a solution that didn't meet that pre-definition, but still is totally applicable. Yeah, oh sure. Um, then you got vulture. Vulture. Okay, um, I, I like that they're picking lots of uh, commonly feared, yeah, uh, mythological and real animals. The uh, armies of hell burst forth under Defense Department funding. Yeah, <laughs> it's not not the case in this one either. What, what is what is the next one is at? called Cerberus. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's Chiron. Here we go. No, uh, it's a, it's a, this is a project to develop a, an unmanned aerial vehicle, UAV, that would be capable of remaining in flight for up to five years without the need for maintenance or refueling. Okay. Wow. So yeah. we're talking about like using solar cells and, and mm-hmm. fuel cells, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea being that you could put this up in the air. It could have a surveillance role um, or reconnaissance role. And you wouldn't need to have it come down after because most most drones that are used have a very limited flying time. Uh, this would be something that would be used for long term. Um, and that project uh, actually, I believe, is now concluded and they've they're they kind of transitioned into looking into ways of um, uh, accelerating the advancement of solar cell technology because oh, it's a cool. very important component of this. Yeah, yeah. Next, you have the Extreme Accuracy Tasked Ordinance, or Exacto. Which I have to feel like they're going to get into, like, copyright trouble about, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Like, I don't trademark, know. rather. If, sorry. If, yeah. if, you're, if you're Exacto, I'm not sure that you go after the Department of Defense, <laughs> but maybe. Um, so this is technology for military snipers. That could also be a deterrent. Oh, uh, sh- <laughs> sure. Uh, and this one's been in the news a lot over the past couple days uh, since we've been we, – we are recording this podcast episode, uh, Look Behind the Curtain, at, on the 28th of April. Yep, And I've been seeing this pop up a whole bunch. Yeah, so, so Exacto, this would be – Guided small caliber bullets. And mm. by small caliber, I mean 50 caliber. So small for a given for definition a of small. Rifle. Yeah. Um, and by guided, what, what do you mean guided? So they're developing bullets that would be capable of changing pathways in mid flight. So let's say that you are a sniper and you've lined up a shot on a target. You've identified the target. So there'd have to be some way for this targeting system to communicate with the bullet, essentially saying this is where we're shooting. Uh, you fire, but let's say the wind changes direction. If you're a truly gifted sniper and you're firing from a very far distance, a change in wind could be all that it takes for a hit to turn into a miss. Oh, sure. And if you miss, you've also given away potentially your position and endangered your mission. Mm -hmm. So this would be a means of having a system that could allow for corrections in bullet flight. 
so that the bullet actually hits the intended target. Now, you'll notice I'm using a lot of terminology that dehumanizes the purpose of snipers. That's not by accident. That's the way DARPA defines these things, too, because once you start talking about this is a way for you to kill people more efficiently, it gets super grim super fast. Yeah, this uh, yeah. is kind of a strange reminder and wake-up call on this, because while DARPA is coming up with lots of wonderful technologies that do filter down to the, the everyday level, and if we partially have them to thank uh, for the internet, you can see them as a very positive organization in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they're funding I, I, technology, yay technology. But we but. also have to remember, yeah, they're they're going to make bullets and stuff too, right? Yeah. And and you know, you could even argue that you know the responsible use of that technology can still be positive in the overall scheme of things. But uh, sure. when you get down to particulars, it's it's. It's hard to talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, and you just you just can't forget that when they say engage targets faster, what what they genuinely mean is is kill a bunch of people. Yeah. More efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that's that's just the reality of the situation. Now, that technology may end up affecting other things that end up being in civilian technology down the road that we can't necessarily anticipate right now. Oh, sure. I, I can imagine, for for example, going back to autonomous vehicles, uh, guiding systems being useful for, for that kind of right. thing. Right. Or even for some forms of uh, autonomous flight, it could be important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Lots of different A- other applications. Anything in robotics, really? Yeah. Uh, so you know, there's if, if your if your Roomba can target a uh, pile of of escaped kitty litter better, sure. I'm just now thinking about being in fear of my Roomba. I'm already my, my Roomba is able to pick me off from from across the house. <laughs> um, so the next one is one that we've already kind of referenced earlier in this episode: the legged squad support system, or LS3. This is the one that includes the uh, technology that was developed by Boston Dynamics, the big dog technology, mm-hmm. the legged robotic units. And the purpose for these isn't to fill the enemy with fear when they see this four-legged monstrosity (laughs) marching toward them at that style. To change their hearts and make them collapse into a puddle of, oh, it's so cute. Yeah, it's neither of those things. It's specifically to serve as like a mule. It's it's designed to carry cargo. Because Soldiers can carry a lot of stuff. Some of them might be carrying upwards of a hundred pounds of gear. That's like forty-five kilos of gear. That's that's heavy. Uh, and to think that you know you often will end up also having to walk a very great distance while mm-hmm. carrying that. You know, you're you're already talking about a huge physical demand on a soldier, and that's before there's any sort of combat that might. Take oh, place. yeah, yeah. And, and that kind of physical strain can absolutely affect your performance in the field. Sure. So this so this project is about finding means of creating uh, robotic uh, systems that could carry gear on behalf of soldiers. It could keep pace with soldiers. So it has to be able to uh, go across different types of terrain, including difficult terrain. And to remain safe around those soldiers. So in other words, you have to create a robot that not only keeps pace and can travel the same sort of ground that the soldiers do, but doesn't tread on their feet or bump into them or, you know, other things that we've talked about with robots, things that you have to consider anytime you have a robot and human uh, potentially interacting with one another. So uh, that's what that system is all about. 
Uh, so yeah, I mean, those are just, that's just a kind of an overview of some of the projects that DARPA has in various stages of development right now. Uh, there are tons of other ones that we didn't even touch upon. Oh, of course. Yeah. There are many, many, many things that they are always working on. If you guys have heard about one that you would like us to take a deeper look at, we would love to hear from you. Yeah, you should send us an email and say, hey, there's this specific DARPA initiative that we would love to hear more about. Uh, we will happily take a look, uh, at least as far as DARPA will allow us to, mm-hmm. and and report back on that. Uh, you can contact us by just sending an email to fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. I think I may have mentioned that email address before, uh, but fwthinking at howstuffworks.com in case you missed it the first five times. <laughs> um, so this is one of those things where, you know, I, I am overall happy that DARPA exists. Actually, I'm really happy that DARPA exists because as, as flippant as I can be about this, national defense is incredibly important and I, you know, we would not be here if it weren't for national defense. <laughs> our lives would be, if, if they were in fact our lives would be significantly different. Um, so it's, it's one of those things, but I'm also thankful for the technology that has come out of it that has benefited us in a consumer fashion. Again, the three of us would not be in this room right now if it weren't for the internet. We wouldn't have jobs. Oh, that's a good point. Not here anyway. Well, I mean, we, it, it, in that parallel universe, we might all wind up sitting in a small room talking together anyway. We'd two, be in this room trying to create a fire. I think I think <laughs> two out of the three of us would be trying to induct the third one into Hydra. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I have an interesting business opportunity for you. Well, I have a rat on a skewer to cook. <laughs> I want to get this fire going. Uh, that's fair. All right. So uh, at any rate, uh, the as far as what the future holds for DARPA, it, it's really going to be a continuation of developing technologies that will benefit military operations in some way, whether it's directly for combat roles or support roles. That's its purpose. It's going to continue doing that. And – as a result, those technologies, many of them will filter down to benefit our lives in ways that are very difficult for us to anticipate right now. Uh, I'm sure when when DARPA was first formed, back when it was ARPA, no one had really thought about the possibility of something as incredible as the Internet, right? And so it's when you think about that, there – it's impossible for us to predict what's going to come out next. And there are plenty of research and development uh, departments in in um, companies and in universities that depend very heavily upon DARPA's investment in mm-hmm. order for them to do the work they do. Oh, yeah. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes next. Any predictions, Joe? I think that the uh, the controlling of large flying beetles is really going to be key to the next stage of uh, – of how stuff works in particular, yeah. because yeah. we're going to be moving away from like web video podcasting and into disseminating leaflets that are carried out by beetles that I, are controlled I by think, computers. I think that the beetles could actually uh, be carrying our microphones and video cameras, like like swarms of microphones and video cameras. Mm-hmm. I think they already do. Now, there are only two remaining beetles, but I think. They're fully capable of carrying cameras and microphones. My prediction is that the next big thing coming out of DARPA will be a uh, pun-generating computer. <laughs> and then you can replace the host. Pun- yeah, exactly. <laughs> that we can sit in Jonathan's chair and it will just take whatever the last word we said was and turn it into something horrific. 
I think the important thing for us to remember is that all you need is love. So if you guys have any suggestions <laughs> for future episodes of Forward Thinking, again, write us. I'm not going to repeat the email address again. That joke is long since dead. But please get in touch with us. You can also touch base with us on Twitter, Google+, or Facebook. At Twitter and Google+, we are FW Thinking. Search FW Thinking in Facebook. We'll pop right up. Leave us a message. Tell us what you think. Give us you know, your requests for future episodes. We would love to hear from you. And you'll hear from us again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at exojacqui.com. Made for women by women. This is the lunch rush at your local deli. Orders are flying in. Online on the phone, and in person. Order for Nick. So is it possible that fast internet could help your business outrun the rush? It is with Comcast Business. Powering your connected devices with gig speed Wi-Fi and fast downloads and uploads. With Comcast Business, next level speed isn't just possible, it's happening. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Requires gigabit internet and compatible router. Actual speeds vary. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule. If you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit mortonbuildings.com and start your construction process. With superior materials, craftsmanship, best-in-class warranty, Morton Buildings are made to last for generations. At Morton... The difference is in the details. From their cutting-edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field, they are dedicated to surpassing expectations. Their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years, and Morton Buildings is 100% employee-owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process. 
starting before the walls even go up. Visit MortonBuildings.com to get started today. 